Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, I speak to Greg Namer, who is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, as well as an Andrew Carnegie Fellow. Greg's research is focused on how to affect technological change, and he's written the book How Solar Energy Became Cheap, which has become immensely popular amongst both climate and energy experts. I was really excited to get to speak to Greg for two main reasons. Firstly, his telling of the solar PV story is just really fascinating. I imagine that some listeners will be familiar with the learning curve and rights law, which we have discussed in other episodes too, whereby it has been observed that each time solar capacity doubles, prices drop by around 20%, and that cumulatively that this has led to solar becoming about a thousand times cheaper than it was just a few decades ago. But I imagine that few listeners will be familiar with what actually happened in real life that led to these absurdly large cost declines, and really what's behind uh, this uh, kind of observed law. Greg argues that innovation was driven by distinct phases, and that the timing of these was arguably contingent on some key policy and individual decisions. So whilst cheap solar has been a great headwind for mitigating climate change, and in worse worlds it could have arrived much later, it could have also arrived a lot sooner. Uh, and that brings me to the second reason, which is why I was excited to speak to Greg, uh, which is that I think that there are some important lessons from solar PV to apply to other technologies, both within and beyond climate change. I think that a lot of causes promoted by effective altruism are deeply linked to the idea of affecting technological development. For example, accelerating alternative proteins to end factory farming, bringing forth metagenomic sequencing to warn against pandemics, or steering artificial intelligence to be safer and more transparent. That means that there is a lot to learn here from other fields too. Uh, things like grabbing policy windows to push through ambitious agendas, roadmapping how technology can scale from niche markets to widespread global adoption, and what key features let a technology unlock learning by doing, and when we need to look for other case studies. All in all, I think that there is a lot in this episode. So as always, there are chapter marks to help guide you through the interview. But without further ado, here's the episode. My name is Greg Nemet. I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin, and I work on low-carbon innovation. Great. Uh, and what is a problem that you're currently stuck on? Uh, I think the big question I have is how fast can nascent climate technologies grow? And there's urgency to decarbonize our economy by mid-century. And so technologies that are just emerging and looking promising and have lots of good attributes are cool if they grow and people can use them, but they're only meaningful for the climate if they get really big and so that they can play a big role in that. Uh, is there's some urgency to doing that. So that's a big question I have. How fast can things grow? One of these technologies that you looked at was uh, solar PV and actually wrote a whole fantastic book about. Yeah. And one one of the things that like really struck me there is I think maybe relating to this theme of urgency you mentioned, which is yeah. that often I think in um, discourse you see uh, around on the internet and uh in, in policy as well, is that solar PV was this like great success story. Um, and, you know, we saw this like really dramatic decline in costs. But I think one of the really interesting things that uh, you raise here is we could have actually gotten to where we are here um, a lot quicker. And yeah, I just find that like a really interesting framing. And I'm maybe curious for you to kind of expand uh, on, on what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, yeah, no question. It's been a success factor of 10,000 cost reduction. Now it's the cheapest way that humans have ever been able to produce electricity at scale. That's with solar. And it's now 3% of the world's electricity supply. And if it keeps growing like it is, it'll be at 50% in the next decade or so. So huge success, but it took a really long time. And if we want to use it as a model for other technologies, we need to go faster. But one thing, yeah, people think about is, well, could we have had solar, inexpensive, high-performing, reliable solar sooner than we did? And I think the first thing I would say is, well, when did we get that? And it's really like 2018. 
We start to have power purchase agreements that are beating mm-hmm. fossil fuels without subsidies. So that's a pretty that's a pretty good place to be. But if you look at the history, it took 60 or 70 years to get there from the first commercial solar cell in 1958. And solar's had multiple false dawns. And it's also had periods when something promising happened with the technology and then it was just left to just hang around for long periods of time. And so I put the period from that first commercial cell to the oil crisis in 1973, that 15 years uh, was a wasted period for solar. There was another 15-year period in 1981 when the U.S. cut its R&D budgets for solar by 90% and really only gets picked up by the Japanese with their policy in 1996. So that's another 15 years we lost. And then with the global financial crisis, a lot of countries uh, cut their subsidies for solar for about five years or so. So you add those together, there's at least half the history of solar, about 30, 35 years, where we weren't doing much with the technology. Uh, And we're lucky that it did keep going in those periods in niche markets and with individuals that kept kept on it. And that was really important. But I, yeah, I wonder what would have happened if we really made a push on solar earlier. You know, I probably couldn't have gotten all those 35 years back, but I think there's a good reason to think we could have got half of it back. And then, so then we got cheap solar 15 or 20 years ago and, Mm. At this point, it's a really big part of the whole global energy supply. So that that would change things like that might change how a country might deal with an issue like a natural gas embargo during the UK crisis. That might be different um, if we were 15 years more forward on solar. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, going back to this theme of urgency, I think it's really interesting to think what these 15 years could have brought us. In some ways, this um, race to develop cheap solar PV was a race against um, some big countries like China and India industrializing and trying to get this cheap enough um, so that as these countries grow, which is you know really important for, for all sorts of uh, global health and well-being reasons, they can industrialize using clean and, and cheap energy. And you know, to some degree, you can see uh, the windfall from solar, you know, coming there. India has cut its coal capacity by a whole bunch, um, I think, in large part with expectation um, that solar PV can can make up uh, for that shortfall. But if you imagine, right, like 15 years was really that time that India and Chinese economies kind of took off. And um, we would maybe just be in a very different place uh, if that had kind of come through. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's a really good way to put it. I think we missed China. And I think if... We had inexpensive solar 15 years ago, like 2002. That's the year that China, that's when they joined the World Trade Organization and all their growth statistics have a a kink in 2002. Everything grows faster since then. So yeah, we could have had China growing on solar, but you know, now we have a chance for India to really develop on solar, but really the opportunity is places like Vietnam, Indonesia, Nigeria, Mm -hmm. that, you know, could be the big growing economies in the next 20 years. And they have a chance to do that without fossil fuels. We'll see if they choose to do that because those places also have large fossil fuel endowments. Um, but, you know, the the alternatives now are way more appealing than it would have been 20 years ago, like solar. Really interesting. And I guess there's also a point here of like, uh, let's not just lament the past, but also kind of look forward on how we can do better. And I think uh, one of the other interesting themes um, I want to get into about your book is that I think you really just offer a playbook on how we can do uh, better for, you know, the next generation of technologies. And this is urgent, um, you know, both in climate change, uh, as you said, and I think there's a 
interesting tangent on on CDR that I want to get into. But mm. I think also zooming out, I'm just also really interested in how we can think about this more broadly for other technologies like um, alternative proteins and uh, what have you. And just, yeah, um, really seeing what the best kind of way to do, uh, you know, large scale R&D is. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to dig into that um, yeah, if, if you're done. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, I guess one other um, theme or something I want to um, kind of frame parts of this conversation is, um, yeah, that I think one of the things that just really struck me about your book is that I think it just offers a really interesting interdisciplinary and really historical take on what happened here with solar. I think often um, when you ask people what they think of solar, you know, you have these kind of learning by doing graphs where the line just kind of goes down. But in some ways, that's just a really big kind of abstraction of what happened here. Um, versus I think you really highlight the historical story and some of the real turning points, uh, you know, when things went well and when things didn't go well uh, to kind of think about this. So I guess um, maybe one kind of question off the top that I'm curious about is like, what made you want to take this kind of approach, um, especially something that, yeah, feels a lot more um, interdisciplinary uh, than, than lots of other uh, takes here? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's just my background. You know, I, I did an undergrad in geography where I took classes in energy systems and in climate change. Uh, I, you know, did a PhD in this interdisciplinary uh, department called energy and resources. And so, you know, it was just always inherently, you need to look at these problems from multiple angles, otherwise you miss something. And, you know, there are insights you get from looking deep and just using econometric tools or using engineering tools or political science tools. For sure, those are crucial. But there's something you miss if you don't take a look at the interactions. And that's, I just find it interesting to look at that way. So I think looking at it from multiple disciplines, like the policy, the engineering, the economics, the markets, entrepreneurialism, the business, and how international relations played into a role in it, I think you kind of need that to explain the whole story. And certainly the international parts of it, because that's another thing that people tend to have a lens they'll, you know, see that the most of the interesting things happen in one place like China, or they'll yeah. look at the place that they know well, like their own country. And that's also helpful to go deep in those areas and, and say something about them. But for solar, it was so much of this global connection and global innovation system of people moving around and money moving from one country to the other, the machines moving all over the place. And I think that's something that you kind of need to tell the full story. So yeah, I mean, I, I just find I enjoy looking at problems that way. And that's been my training, too. For, and for this particular issue to understand how solar became inexpensive, I think you really need, need to international and the interdisciplinary approach. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's so important, um, yeah, both to just understand like what fundamentally um, went on here, um, maybe both to extrapolate the curve going forward, you know, when we ask ourselves, like, how cheap can... Uh, solar get or when we you know want to consider in like replicating this in, in other cases like what is the yeah. criteria that you need and um how can you speed this up right not just seeing that the learning curve exists but how can you like uh run down it uh, as quickly as possible but yeah so let's maybe start here with these um what feel like kind of distinct four or six phases depending on how you kind of count them where solar yeah. pv changed both its kind of international setting um, and really just the like pipeline setting or something that um, it was in. Could you maybe give us like a big picture summary of, of your thesis here? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I would start with the first stage just being scientific developments. And, you know, that was not to solve any energy crisis or to even invent some new technology. This is like basic science 150 years ago. People trying to understand how materials work, trying to understand the structure of the atom, noticing in experiments that they got some strange effects, like when you shine light 
on a piece of metal. I think it had boron in it at the time that you can detect an electric current. So this is associated with trying to also understand how electricity worked. So fundamental questions. But there was something about that where it led to fundamental understanding. And, you know, that's where Einstein won his Nobel Prize. It wasn't for relativity. It was for understanding how solar panels work. Well, understanding the theory behind the photoelectric effect. And I don't think that's inconsequential. I really think that deep understanding is what led people at Bell Labs to be able to develop into it an actual device because Einstein had worked out the theory and then you could start to make something a device based on that. So it was a very kind of bottom-up understanding that led to the first device. So that's kind of the first phase, which is really experimentation. The second big push was uh, in, was the 1970s oil crisis. And that's when the U.S. really got involved and put big money, a couple billion dollars over the 10-year period into solar research and development. And a lot was worked out in that time. Some people argue that the uh, the devices that we have today are mostly what mm. got arrived at at the end of that period. Um, lots of R&D went into it. it. One of the crucial things is it pulled a lot of people into the industry. And so you had expertise that came from people working on the space race, people working on electronics, started to work on energy because they saw it was really important. And that helped. And I think that's what's mm. happening today with climate change. We're pulling in really good people that used to be working in other areas. So that that makes a big difference. And that was a big part of the U.S. 1970s story. We had the first development of a learning curve. So it was a, another person who came from another industry, Paul Maycock, who moved from uh, Texas Instruments and applied the learning curve to solar. And he turned out to be really prescient with that. Uh, and yeah. then some of the first purchases of solar panels in the 1970s, too. So that was the second big period. Third big period is the Japanese of developing these niche markets First, it's toys, but then they do the first subsidies for consumers. They create a rebate program. It's the first time that governments gave money to consumers and left it up to consumers to pay for the rest. And it showed that hundreds of thousands of households were willing to do that. And that was a new discovery. The fourth phase is that Germany came up with the subsidy program called the Renewable Energy Law, and within it, a feed-in tariff. And that just made the market get much bigger all of a sudden. And then the fifth phase is China responding to Germany and entrepreneurs in China developing new plants. A lot of them are trained in Australia and a lot of expertise comes with their work in Australia. And then they apply it in China and scale it up. And then we eventually get cheap solar. So it's really kind of a, a relay race passing the baton among multiple countries. I sometimes try to sum up the whole story in one sentence, and that would be that the U.S. created a technology Germany built a market and China made it cheap. And, you know, it all kind of, there's other players, Japan played a role, Australia played a role, but that's, that I think are the three phases that are probably kind of the, the first way to say it. And also um, something we could take to other places too, other technologies too. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's superb. So yeah, I really want to dig into uh, each of these phases and maybe ask uh, kind of a few more detailed questions. Yeah. And then maybe after that kind of zoom out and, uh, yeah, just like ask around why, um, you know, this technology seems to have had these kind of distinct international phases, like what mm. was going on there. Uh, and maybe more fundamentally, like how can we replicate this with with other technologies too? But yeah, let's maybe stick with solar and kind of get a bit more into the weeds. So you mentioned, yeah, like at the beginning that um, solar just has this kind of deep scientific connection. Um, 
And yeah, like one of the like really surprising things there is that the solar that we have today seems to still be like really rooted in that like just basic pattern design um, that I think like Bell Labs issued. And yeah, I'm wondering what exactly you think it is about that kind of like scientific route or something that has enabled solar to, to get so cheap so quick. Yeah, I think there's this fundamental understanding of how light interacts with semiconductors that, you know, allowed a lot of things to happen, uh, allowed people to use that material in a lot of different ways, to optimize it, to pick a good material like silicon. It also helped that that is a material that we know really well from the computer industry. So we know what happens when we add dopants to the semiconductor and which ones to use, how pure it needs to be. And we have ways of making that material that are well-established. We have equipment that came from that too. So there is this kind of fundamental understanding of how semiconductors work and how light interacts with them uh, that just unleashes the potential. Mm. Now, the counterfactual to, or the counter to that is that we also have fundamental understanding of how uh, nuclear fission works. And mm. we've also applied that in energy and in a lot of ways had big success with it for a period. And then kind of ran into a wall after we got to say 10% of global electricity supply. So it's not the only thing that matters. Other things have to come into play. But if you do have that fundamental understanding that we had a nuclear and we had in solar, um, it does seem to enable growth to happen. You get more, it's more easy to predict how uh, things are going to work over time and with other materials and other systems. So yeah, I think that that fundamental understanding uh, was really helpful for solar. Yeah. And maybe worth uh emphasizing as well just like how long it took to get to this like basic kind of scientific understanding as well so i guess the gap right between um einstein and that like first kind of bell labs pattern was almost 50 years and presumably there was a lot more scientific work before einstein as well that's like yeah yeah that's right almost 50 years from the theory and then before that some experiments with little rods and seeing a little electricity come out of it um, but then Bell Labs, I think it was really the adjacent work that they were doing on semiconductors that made them mm. familiar with silicon. And then uh, also a need. They needed, and they were working on the transistor, and then they needed, they could use power in remote places to uh, to power their telecommunication system. So they had an applied need for developing it that wasn't about solving climate change or even about solving the 1970s oil crisis. It was about we need remote power once in a while to power our transistors mm. and our telecom repeater stations. This could be helpful, and it turned out to be helpful, um, but it didn't need to be you know, something that had to solve the whole world's problem. I think that also helped uh, get things going. But yeah, it took a while from understanding the properties with Einstein's Nobel Prize winning work and the first commercial cell in 1958. Yeah, and I guess one of the like uh, fundamental questions here is how much can you direct this kind of basic scientific research, right? I think there's like a lot of emphasis that a lot of this, you know, uh, fundamental research, you can't really direct, you can't really predict in advance of like what's going to end up being useful and kind of world changing uh, and what won't. But on the other hand, um, you know, Bell Lab just uh, seems to be responsible for all sorts of like innovations. And it's kind of right, like famous for having just been this like huge cluster of of scientific output um, that ended up being useful in, in kind of a huge just variety of ways. So yeah, yeah. I'm curious for, for your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, I guess a few things. So, yeah, you can't direct innovation and science because there's inherent uncertainty about it, but you can increase the odds. Um, so you can be funding science. You can be encouraging new types of science. You can encourage high-risk science. You can encourage science that's likely to fail. 
uh, because that's the only way you get something new to start. And so you need to support risk taking. And Bell Labs is really, you know, kind of further along from the research, pure research is being applied. They had this collaboration among their different uh, divisions that worked really well. There was, you know, people have studied the organization of how the offices were laid out there. That seemed to work really well. There was, you know, space for tinkering, space for possibilities that didn't work out and you weren't punished if it if it didn't turn into a successful innovation. So I think there's, you can't direct science because you don't know exactly where it's going, but you can increase the probability of success, partly with funding, partly with getting lots of people, getting people mm -hmm. that from different backgrounds to work together, having an applied problem seems to help, uh, and then supporting risk by not punishing uh, technical failure. I think that's, those are all things that people have tried to learn from, like you said, from Bell Labs, there's a book called The Idea Factory. And that was just right, kind yeah, of this yeah. period where they just had one thing after another. But there's also this concept in innovation of technological opportunity. And sometimes things are just ripe for the picking. And, mm. you know, it seemed like with semiconductors and the understanding transistor and photoelectric effect, like that was all kind of cooking in a lot of ways in the 1940s. And then in the 1950s, it was, like, it was ready to go. Um, you know, maybe you could say something similar with mRNA understanding and developing right, yeah. vaccines based on those so that when we really needed one, we were able to get a vaccine developed in record time and not just like the fastest ever, but four times faster than the record before that. So sometimes the the groundwork has been laid. And when you really try to address the problem, uh, you have a breakthrough because everything's set up for you to to make progress. That's that's technological opportunity, but you have to take advantage of it. I guess like, yeah, on the point of mRNA, not just four times faster than before, but now looking forward, aiming to be uh, three times faster still. So yeah, yeah some some really um, breathtaking stuff there. But yeah, I guess so um, you said that, you know, part of like the Bell Lab uh, kind of pattern here and stuff came into play because there was some need of it. Um, think kind of NASA and uh, space technology and all sorts of like very specialized things. Um, but the 1970s seems to be like the first kind of turning point where this knee just like kind of becomes a lot bigger. And it is because suddenly the whole like energy uh, economy, or at least in the US, like really drastically changes. Um, yeah. Can you walk us through what, what happened there and what that meant for solar? Yeah. I mean, there was a huge, huge world changing event. 19, October 1973, the Arab oil embargo and all the countries that were supporting um, Israel in that war. That was the US, the UK, Japan, Canada, the Netherlands all of a sudden had their oil supplies from the um, Arab nations cut off. And it just went from energy and oil in particular being something that was abundant and super cheap. So cheap that a lot of countries, including the U.S., were putting oil into power plants. You know, it's a really low value way to use oil, which is so valuable for mobility and transportation. But it was so cheap and available that we were just burning it to make electricity. Uh, and you can't imagine doing that today at any large scale, but that's things changed in 1973. And then it became with a Republican president, President Nixon at the time, made it a national priority that we were going to make ourselves. And he used this phrase that is still used today. I was, I was fact checking something about it in a Senate race a couple of weeks ago where they used yeah. this word of energy independence. And it was coming up on the 200th anniversary of the U.S. in 1976. And the idea is that we were going to be energy independent by the end of the decade with this big push called Project Independence. And the idea was to make take it, make use out of how we'd done things with the Manhattan Project, building four nuclear weapons, the Apollo Project, having seven moon landings. 
and do the same for energy to make ourselves energy independent. And a lot of money went into research and development, mostly in nuclear and synthetic fuels, like trying to make liquid fuels from natural gas and oil. Yeah. Uh, and a trickle, a little bit of it went into solar. But for solar, that was just gigantic. It just completely transformed it and brought all these people in and really developed just because um, it was a tiny, tiny field beforehand, right? Like, yeah. I think that's the, the point to emphasize. Yeah, that. it was a tiny field, a few dozen people. You know, there was this conference right before the Arab oil embargo, like the summer before, where people were talking about solar and thinking about, could we make a research pro program on it? Could we take it more seriously? And then they had no idea what was coming. And all of a sudden, <laughs> there was like, yeah, could you give us our plans? Because we want to do that. But we want to do it, you know, 10 times bigger than you would ever have imagined in your stretch goal. And so all of a sudden... Yeah, it became the focus of solar was one of the foci in Project Independence. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm curious to ask about that kind of Cherry Hill conference um, specifically of like, how important was that? Because it seemed that like all of a sudden there was this like huge political appetite to move money. And I think I have this like open question in, in my head of like, how important was it that there was like some kind of roadmap of like what to do here, like some kind of guidance or like prepared report or prepared plan that a politician could like then pick up and like maybe even 4x, but at least have like some kind of sense of like, okay, I can spend like some money or I can like allocate like something here. Yeah, I, I think the thing to realize it was a absolute crisis in very similar ways to the Ukraine invasion has been a crisis for Europe and affecting the whole world right now. And when you're in a crisis, not really thinking about the long term, you're not thinking, well, let's work on solar now so that by 2018, we'll have low cost solar beating fossil fuels. No, it's more, can this actually help solve our problem that we have in the next few years? And I think if there wasn't some kind of roadmap, if all we had was some evidence from 15 years earlier that there was a 1% solar cell, um, you know, probably would have been put even lower on the priority stack. But this way, um, it was a high enough priority because there was plans that were ready, that money could flow, and it was made sense that you could bring in the right people um, and make some progress with it. You know, it didn't become an answer to the energy uh, solution in the 1970s. Really, the answer was using less energy and becoming more efficient. Mm. But, you know, the groundwork was laid and a lot of the progress that happened uh, created the architecture that we use today. And, and basic and really important, it got people into the industry. And that's one thing that I kind of learned from talking to people and interviewing people is people stayed like they came because mm. they thought it was important and there was money all of a sudden. But they stayed because they just somehow got fascinated with the technology. It was so different. It was, you know, potentially, you know, it had this elegant Einstein physics behind it. It could solve pollution problems. It could solve uh, some other problems like energy security. Um, and, you know, so people became passionate about it. And then when markets collapsed, funding collapsed, you know, six or seven years later, a lot of people didn't leave. And I think that was absolutely crucial that we didn't have to start mm. over again uh, after making all that progress. The um, like analogy that I kind of like maybe want to draw out here is actually perhaps pandemic preparedness and COVID-19, where you have like at least what feels like somewhat of a similar event. If you have this like sudden, you know, dramatic uh, political urgency to address this kind of issue. Um, and then it being this question of like, do you have a roadmap um, of technologies that can like prepare the world for pandemics in future kind of ready. And yeah. in a, a previous episode, we talked about the um, Apollo report, which uh, I kind of understood just got like copy and pasted by the White House for 
the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan, but laid out, I think, like similar things around um, metagenomic sequencing. You mentioned mRNA vaccines, like more of this kind of like broad spectrum um, technologies. Um, yeah, and all sorts of things. And I think the question here that you kind of touched on, on like how much of it is it about an immediate, you know, big injection and like funding versus just like building up this ecosystem that, that didn't exist prior, I think is, um, yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, but there's really something to being prepared and being ready. And it's true on technology. And it's also true on policy. But, you know, having mm. these roadmaps, having these supplies ready, having people trained to work in the area, whether it's genomics or in immunology or in solid state physics or in electricity systems, that makes a huge difference that there's capacity available that can maybe shift, maybe stop working mm. on whatever they were working on, the space program or intercontinental ballistic missiles, and all of a sudden start yeah. to work on how do we commercialize this solar technology. So having things ready to go when a crisis happens is huge. And it's true in policy too. You know, as we'll see later, talk about later with the German uh, energy venda and the renewable energy mm -hmm. law, they also had policy ready to go when there's a, a window. So being ready for a right. window that a crisis can open is is a big lesson here in multiple dimensions, technology and yeah. in policy. Yeah, well, briefly sticking uh, to, to the kind of US phase, the other interesting um, kind of theme here um, that you mentioned was that the share of like solar PV specifically um, out of this big project independence seemed to be like just really tiny. And I think it makes sense that, you know, governments, especially when it comes to uncertain technology, uh, just want to hedge their bets. And you can also argue that a lot of other, you know, useful things came out of this. You mentioned energy efficiency. I think you can probably broadly um, track fracking back to this and in improvements in, in kind of like natural gas and what have you. But I was really surprised by how, yes, yeah, small the share in solar was here, but also that a lot of the tension seemed to be between betting on solar versus betting on other technologies and the US just like not betting as hard on solar um, as they did on, on some other technologies here. So yeah, I'm curious for your impressions there. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the issues is, you know, we talked about Cherry Hill Conference, they kind of had these plans of a solar program. And then, you know, after Project Independence starts, you know, those plans get upgraded a lot. But once they get upgraded a lot, they're still like less than 1% of the overall project independence right. budget. So, you know, one thing is there's not that many people available to spend money on. But two, a little bit goes a long way. And that's one of the things about solar. It's it's small scale. So, you know, you can build a solar panel with a couple people in a laboratory and some material and a little bit of equipment. You can't do that with a nuclear reactor or a synthetic fuels plant, there you're talking about billion dollars minimum to do a demonstration mm. plant. And so I think that's why some of the other investments are so much bigger is that if you want to do nuclear at all, you have to be spending billions to just to do research. This is not to build lots of nuclear power plants. This is to build a next generation demonstration plant or to build a, in this case, we built like four synthetic fuels plants to take coal and natural gas and make liquid fuels out of them. And, you know, that's like $5 billion right there. So yeah, in a way it shows solar wasn't a big priority, but on the other hand, R&D wise, I would say that the outcomes, technical advances and importance to the long-term future um, were much higher on that 1% that went to solar versus the, you know, the 30 or 40% that went to nuclear and the other that went to making uh, liquid fuels out of coal and natural gas. Yeah. I, I think the point of like maybe solar just 
didn't have a lot of room for more funding, right? Like it already 4X, it's hard to imagine it, uh, kind of like 40Xing or something, I think yeah. is um, a really important point. But I think there's still something kind of implicit maybe in what I'm reading of like what um, policymakers kind of like long-term visions here were and like just thinking about like, well, how big could solar get if it does pay off or something? And it seems to be that like the ambition here was like a lot smaller than it ended up, um, you know, turning out to be. Um, and you even yeah. had like some echoes of this before, right? Um, I think when it came to um, Eisenhower administration, there was like more of a conscious decision on like betting on nuclear rather than betting on solar. And mm-hmm. to uh, some degree, you know, that like really flips when it comes to Japan, where I think there was like a more conscious decision um, that, you know, solar would get cheap and then maybe nuclear helps like later down the line, but yeah. solar kind of first. And it's interesting that there seems to be like some kind of tension here um, between technologies and that policymakers just have very different understandings um, of what technologies are ultimately going to going to pay off. Yeah, it's hard to know ahead of time. Um, on one hand, maybe the obvious implication is then is we do a portfolio, place lots yeah. of bets. That's what venture capitalists do. That's what people with the stock market do. Why shouldn't we do that with technology and with public investment and research and development for technology? And the reason you can't do it is there are, you know, those investments are not available at any scale. Like you can only do big chunks or do nothing at all for nuclear. And so it kind of forces the issue. Um, And so that's, you know, that came up a couple of times in the 1950s Mm. about nuclear, uh, like you said, in the 1970s again. Um, but, you know, there's something about solar that's completely different. It's it's small scale. It doesn't suit the energy generation uh, kind of infrastructure, like how the grid works, how it's operated, the fact that we give monopolies to the people that run those plants and provide electricity to people. You can put a nuclear power plant in that system and you really don't need to change that system at all. It's just like another power plant. Mm. Whereas with solar, uh, you can think about it could be lots of different people with their own small little solar plants. They might not be owned by the utility. It feels like it's a lot more about losing control of the system. And you could argue that that's a problem for the reliability of it and the technical stability of it. But you could also argue that that's a problem for a company that wants to have, you know, retain, make profits from Mm -hmm. their monopoly franchise and control as much of it as it can. So there's kind of technical reasons why solar and nuclear are so different, but there's also kind of political power reasons that are at least as important and and linger today too. I mean, there's still Mm. issues about solar kind of being held back in places because electric utilities don't find it as profitable as other things they might do. Right, right, yeah. Okay, and I guess uh, this is maybe uh, somewhat of a reach, but maybe to to try and use this as a um, segue, I think we're now entering questions of um, commercialization and like how can you actually get this technology to pay off? And um, yeah, like I think another thing that I found interesting here is that um, it seems that when... Uh, you know, this first push of solar R&D came, the idea was for it to ultimately help serve the grid and, you know, have these more uh, utility uh, kind of applications. Uh, But really, it seemed that like solar PV was commercializable, but not in that way. It found like a different um, set of markets. Uh, And that kind of marks, um, you know, this kind of transition from this like US R&D phase to uh, what you kind of describe as the uh, Japanese niche niche markets phase. So yeah, Yeah. curious, um, yeah, for you to kind of introduce that that topic. Yeah, I mean, it it was kind of, it was a transition, um, but it's also just to be clear, it wasn't just that the Japanese were 
you know, becoming the world superpower or appeared to be like going to be the biggest economy in the world. That's what it seemed like at mm. the time. And we're had the technological prowess in a lot of areas. But the U.S. voluntarily shut itself down from advancing solar. So Ronald Reagan wins the 1980 election, comes into office in 1981, and the solar's budget is cut by 90%. So it's 10% of what it was within a couple of budget cycles. And so you can just see what happens, not just to technological progress, but to the people too. So then they have to go into other areas, go to other places. And so the the knowledge is just scattered and the progress of solar in the U.S. just uh, is just halts. So it's important, or it was really good, that there was some country around to pick up the pieces and take solar to the next phase. And so Japan, again, going back to this theme of being prepared, had also was also cut off from oil supply and the Arab oil embargo and also started its own R&D project called the Sunshine Project. A lot of it was on solar. So they had the absorptive capacity. This is the idea that they had the technological understanding. They had trained scientists and engineers. They had companies that were involved to do something with solar. And partly what they did is kept up the R&D. Um, but they also started to actually use it in real markets and they weren't big markets and in a lot of ways it was just kind of silly stuff but it was large electronics conglomerates that were really growing with consumer electronics and things like watches and calculators and toys and little lanterns and they started trying to put for just for product differentiation and have a little unique feature put tiny little solar panels on them and they did mm. and they worked but the crucial thing if they were going to do that for these really cheap consumer products the solar panels had to be almost free, like super cheap. And so that was the impetus uh, for getting solar to really start to become an affordable technology and something that could last and be produced at scale. And so that was interesting because it wasn't anything that would affect global energy supply. It didn't help Japan's national security or energy independence, um, but it got the large companies like Sharp and Sanyo and Panasonic to take the technology seriously and start working with it and include it into their into their products. So that that made a big difference. These and they're sometimes called niche markets, these small markets mm. that don't matter in the long term because they're small, but they do matter in, in terms of moving the technology along and, and carrying it along to the next market where the demands might be for a cheaper cost or some performance metric that's different. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely, I think my, my favorite graph, uh, from your book was this kind of like demand curve, uh, for these like niche solar markets where you can see, mm. right. That as you go from, uh, kilowatts to megawatts to gigawatts, like what kind of new markets kind of open up that help you like get to the scaling, which I think again, yeah. when we're thinking about like, well, what does this like learning curve like look like in practice here? It is really important that you actually have a commercially feasible way to scale to get to your kind of endpoint. Um, yeah. And maybe again, like in contrast to nuclear, right? Like solar just seems to be like much more modular and scalable that on the one hand, like also makes it kind of a necessary requirement that you actually have a, a feasible path to, to scale here. Yeah, but th but that's exactly it. So you didn't, right, it gives you a feasible path to scale because you don't have this binary, either we build a $5 billion nuclear plant or we don't yeah. build anything at all. You can do, oh, well, we'll spend a 40 cent part to go into a watch and have that be a solar panel. And then the next thing, the next niche market was actually consumers. And mm. Japan tried this thing where they gave people a 50% rebate on a solar panel and the Japanese government would pay half and Japanese consumers paid the other half. And they didn't know how much it would lead to, how many people would do it. It was all voluntary. 
And they had mm-hmm. 200,000 households subscribe to this rooftop subsidy program. And that really showed that there was consumer demand, at least for a niche, at least for a small number of people that wanted the power, wanted to be independent, wanted to be environmentally friendly, all of those things probably together. And that helped too, because then we had a new market. And again, this is going from you know less than a watt in a calculator to maybe a thousand or two thousand watts on a small home system, uh, but upscaling bigger systems and starting to actually work with real consumers, not just uh, with large companies installing these. So yeah, that was a big, mm. big change that Japanese rooftop program uh, in the mid nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the other lessons I took from this uh, Japanese niche markets phase uh, is really that consistency just seems to be really important. And in some ways, it's, I think, kind of an indictment of the uh, US boom and bust like R&D cycle. Uh, where if you look at US R&D compared to Japanese R&D, Japanese R&D was really only a, a fraction of what the US spending, uh, especially at that peak um, in, in the 1970s that we talked about before. Um, but really, consistency is maybe more important and you can like do more by being um having a lower level of r&d funding but making it reliable and letting people presumably plan careers and bigger projects and stuff around it um rather than having this kind of like whiplash uh between going from uh you know really big promises to uh having these these kinds of winters yeah absolutely it's so good that japanese had this uh, consistent program the germans also had a consistent program but both of them at lower levels than the u.s and I mean, I sometimes toy with this thought experiment, and I don't know if it's true, but, you know, maybe for the whole system, it's not bad to have a few reliable actors that were playing a consistent role the whole time and had absorptive capacity and were training lots of people like Germany, Japan, and Australia. Mm-hmm. And then once in a while, this wild child, the U.S. comes in and gets super <laughs> serious about it for a few years and then gets distracted and do something else. And it's certainly not good for the U.S. to act that way. They just waste all this money in the boom and then they squander anything that came out of it after the boom. Right. But for the rest of the world, it probably does throw off a lot of spillovers and helpful knowledge that might not have come from this lower level consistent funding. So I don't know. There there is some positive to this kind of overall system that has these consistent players as well as these uh, erratic ones. I mean, if the erratic player was funding consistently at a high level, that would probably have made things happen a lot sooner. Uh, (laughs) And we'd be talking about this having happened 15 years. So I don't think it's good that they do that. But there is some interesting interaction between having, as you say, these low-level consistent uh, funders of R&D and this one that's more of a uh, boom and bust cycle. Yeah, that's interesting. It kind of makes me think, I think I've heard similar arguments around... uh you know, financial bubbles or, for example, the the tech boom in the like early 2000s as well, that you need these kinds of moments to build out the infrastructure, build out the knowledge and stuff that then maybe, you know, in the like public good sense or something pays yeah. off uh, a decade or so later, um, yeah. even if it leaves the original investors bankrupt. Yeah, um, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think the other like important theme that you've touched on there is this like point of knowledge transfers. And I think we'll get more into this like um, to- towards the end. But really that um, it matters a lot that what the US R&D labs uh, do spills over into the Japanese uh, labs and then spills over to the German and then the Chinese. And yeah, we'll, we'll kind of like follow that thread through. But um, open collaboration and uh, sharing of ideas um, seems to be be a really key theme here. Absolutely. And, you know, that's such a big part of this whole thing. Um, it's hard to see how this would have worked uh, if the U.S. just kept everything to itself 
or if China tried to do it all on its own, it's mm. this international collaboration that just, there's something about the nature of the technology, I think. Again, contrasted to nuclear, first of all, it's small scale. The equipment can move around the world, the products can move around the world. A lot of the understanding could fit in someone's one person's head and they can move around easily and then mm. go to other places and talk about it. So, you know, there's something about that. But plus, you know, with nuclear power, because of the dual use and the military aspects of it, knowledge is restricted. Like, you know, in the U.S., we have people born in other countries or foreign citizens that can't go into nuclear labs here working on nuclear energy because of this issue. And it just really slows down progress. And solar didn't have any of that. You know, it, yeah. people are all over the place. There's a, you know, in Wuxi in China, there's a Bavarian restaurant because there's so many Germans that had moved to China to help them set up their production lines in the early 2000s. <laughs> and so there's that kind of just completely global aspect of knowledge flow um, that, yeah, it was a huge part of the whole, uh, the whole progress of the technology. So I guess um, with this theme of uh, international spillovers and uh, global cooperation, I think that like puts us uh, nicely to, to get into the next uh, phase, which is the German uh, like subsidies phase. So I think maybe the, the link here is you mentioned that Japan uh, was you know, piloting and trying to see uh, what these like kinds of household subsidies looked like. Uh, and then Germany really took that and, and ran with it, right? Is, is my kind of understanding here. Could you, yeah, like let, let us know what, um, what went on there? Yeah. So the Japanese developed, like I said, the subsidy program for rooftops and it had this interesting wrinkle that it was a declining subsidy. It started at 50% and went down to zero over 10 years. And so it gave you incentive to act early, but it also accommodated this idea that the technology would probably go down in cost over time. And so they wouldn't need as big a subsidy uh, in the later years. And so that was a really, that was a policy innovation that the Germans then used to say, okay, we'll start with the subsidy program and we're going to turn it down over time because the technology will get better and cheaper and we won't need as much. So that was one policy innovation the Germans adopted from the Japanese. The other policy innovation the Germans adapted was from the US, which in the 1980s in California uh, started offering what were called these standard offer contracts. And it was really to encourage new sources of energy supply and especially in the 1980s it was for wind power and it was a contract that gave a much higher uh rate than the wholesale rate was um, but guaranteed it for 10 years and that led to two billion dollars of wall street money going into the wind industry in california and it was it was a stability this confidence that investors could get a return on their investment in these expensive wind turbines because they knew exactly what price they were going to be getting for electricity over 10 years. And th that to an investor is like, where would you ever get that? Like, you never know yeah. what's going to happen in another couple of years or five years or 10 years. The Germans took that too with their subsidy program. So they took the Japanese idea. The subsidy this year is X. If you only get your system next year, it's this lower rate. But if you get the subsidy X, you'll get it for not only 10 years, for 20 years. So they guaranteed... 20 years of uh, electricity prices from solar that were higher than the grid price. So yeah, it was a no brainer for people to take that up. And you had lots of money go in. You had the German market for solar increase by a factor of four in that first year. Uh, and then you had people financing these systems mm. at like 2% a year because it was zero risk. 
People believed that Germany would honor its commitments. You had a 20-year contract at a high price. And it was solar, so you didn't have to worry about what you would pay for fuel or people or anything because you didn't need any of that. So it was an easy, no-brainer investment that a lot of people took advantage of. And so the, the market just really grew tremendously from that policy innovation of a declining rebate, uh, but a guaranteed price for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, it's just an insane uh, policy, right? Like kind of like on the face of it, it seems to be just like such a radical um like shift and what's going on there. And I think it, it makes me question like, um, why would Germany do this? Um, and I think you can maybe ask yourself like similar questions with uh, US R&D and, uh, you know, maybe uh, to some degree as well with with the Japanese um, niche markets. But I think, I, I yeah, I want to like kind of explicitly ask on like how important were environmental and climate change concerns in making a country like Germany um, willing to subsidize what I think ended up being over $200 billion uh, in, in today's terms to um, get this technology uh, cheaper and, and, and more widespread. Yeah. Um, pollution and climate were high priorities. I guess I'd make it a couple points on it. One, it was aligned with a few other priorities. So it had this like a package of priorities that had been in place for a really long time. And then two, it didn't need to be everybody in Germany that felt that way. So it's a mm. parliamentary system. And so you have this Green Party for the first time gets more than 10% of the vote in 1998 election. And so it becomes part of the ruling coalition with the center-left party, the SPD. And so it's not that everybody in Germany felt this way, but you did have this party of very committed environmentalists say, this is important to us. We're part of the ruling coalition now. We have this policy that we've implemented already in cities in Germany, and we have these documents written up. And so you have these two policy entrepreneurs, people that really took it on themselves, one from the Green Party that had a lot of experience and helped write the policy, and then one from the center-left party who had been in politics a long time, knew all the people, and took it on and sold it to everybody and got it voted on. And in 2000, they had this groundbreaking uh, renewable energy law. But where it comes from, it you know, really has its roots. And um, Hermann Scheer, the SPD, the mm -hmm. center-left leader, he was part of this 1968, uh, you know, revolutionary party. And a lot of the roots of the German Green movement come from that era. And it was really about, uh, you know, rejecting power structures, rejecting the Nazi past that had also roots in the industrial organization mm. in Germany and especially in electric utilities. And then solar comes along as something that allows you to escape some of that. And Herman uh, Scheer called it an emancipatory technology. It allowed you to be free of these power structures that had kind of held people down and, and created problems in the past. And so that was a big part of it. It was kind of this liberation idea. Um, it also coincides with the Chernobyl accident in 1986, where some of the fallout comes to Germany and people mm. in Germany are not supposed to grow or eat vegetables from their gardens for a while. And it really brought it close to home as well. And so there's this kind of connection between. And then also you have nuclear weapons in the 1980s, too, and Germany's on the mm. front lines and this concern about tactical nuclear weapons. And so you kind of can conflate nuclear weapons with nuclear power and then nuclear power in Chernobyl with nuclear power in Germany and solar provides a, uh, a way out of that. And so it was this, this movement that had long roots, but then has this opportunity after 1998 with the green party in power to really 
put some legislation together and sell it. And that's what they did. And so it was kind of a slow burn building momentum over 30 years or so. But then all of a sudden they get this tech, this policy passed and yeah, it's transformative for the solar industry. Yeah. I, I find it really interesting because, um, I think 1980s uh, German environmentalism gets a pretty bad rap uh, in in some circles today, right? Like especially um, for I think kind of like entrenching uh, some some anti nuclear sentiments, definitely within um, the country and also uh, plausibly like more internationally. But uh, yeah, I think it's like worth taking a step back and like reflecting that like they seem to just have been really key here, both in um, you know being this like minority. A coalition government but then also um i think as you said like the importance of like early adopters um you know you don't need to convince an entire population you need to convince um you know five ten however many like percent um to, to kind of um adopt something here um and there you know presumably a lot of these like concerns about decentralized um power energy um wanting to explicitly bet on solar because you didn't want to bet on nuclear um seem seem to have like really mattered yeah, it did really matter. And, you know, in a lot of ways, like I have, you know, nuclear engineering colleagues and pro-nuclear people, and I, I see a lot of the benefits of nuclear too, um, but it, it just doesn't. And so there's this idea that, well, what if we had both? What if we had nuclear power that can help deal with some of the intermittence of sunshine and wind? Um, in a lot of ways, that makes sense. But the politics of it, don't aren't well suited to this kind of diverse portfolio of technologies mm. that work well in a new kind of energy system. The politics that supported solar were really running as an alternative to nuclear. And yeah, really coal is the real enemy in natural gas. And so it should have been those nuclear and solar against coal and gas. But it's just not how the politics worked in Germany. Um, and what Germany did on solar was transformative for the whole world. So you know, if if you had to choose between pr being pro-solar and going in on that, which is what happened, yeah. or being pro-nuclear and trying to do that, I, I just don't think if they had gone pro-nuclear, we'd be talking about how what a great thing nuclear power is for the world, because it probably would have hit the same issues that it's that it's hit since then, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is like probably a, a definitely a different uh, episode, but possibly uh, even like a different book. But like what went on there in like 1980s German politics and if there were any flashpoints to make it more a coalition against fossil fuels as opposed to a coalition against uh, like nuclear. But I think that is like, yeah, like one of the, the big open questions here. Yeah. There, there seems to have also been um, another really key flashpoint, which was around the actual like wording um, of these um, like pieces of legislation uh, and the uh, subsidy program, which I think in many parts um, was an explicit lesson from uh, the 1980s and like kind of the Reagan administration. Uh, but I think, yeah, Alphas is another like kind of interesting uh, potential key point for, for counterfactual uh, impact where, yeah, I'm, I'm curious for, for you to elaborate on. I think another thing that the... German coalition and policy did really well is to make some awkward compromises in order to get the policy passed and have it implemented and also have it last for a while. And so one thing they did is they made consumers, households pay for the subsidies, not energy intensive industries. And in a lot of ways, it seems unfair. Like if we having this solar for the energy system and there's big users that are using electricity to, you know, make steel and do manufacturing of car parts and do that type of thing. Why should they be excluded? And why should we pay? We should, why should we make households pay? Because that's super regressive because households, mm. the poorer you are, the more you pay for energy. So more of your income, you pay for energy. So 
it just seems like kind of a, a pretty inequitable way to do it. But, you know, it was a deal that they had to make to keep uh, the policy in place and to basically buy off the heavy industry from blocking it. Because the industry that would then say, well, if you make our energy prices higher because we have to pay for these subsidies for solar, we're just going to go uh, shut down our plants and open a new plant in China or Malaysia. And so there's always that threat in, in Germany to do that. And so that's a, and it's a, a threat that's perceived seriously. And so that's probably a big reason why um, companies are off the hook and households pay the bill in Germany. But, you know, it's probably, if they hadn't done that, we probably would not have had a, uh, a, a subsidy that was in place for as long as it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it highlights, um, yeah, the importance of some of these like political economy questions. I legit just hadn't thought about um, the question before of like, yeah, utility companies probably have a good reason not to like solar as a technology. And um, yeah, like, you know, if solar scales, that will also be um, to the detriment or as a threat um, to, to other technologies with their own uh, industries kind of behind them. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear like a bit more about um, about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the way it's been explained to me, I would just kind of ask if, you know, maybe from a devil's advocate position or just like, well, why did why did electric utilities that make have all this investment in fossil infrastructure, yeah. some nuclear, but a lot of coal and gas? Why would they allow this to happen? It's not just that, you know, the electric users have to pay. It's that the electric utilities are going to all of a sudden kind of lose their source of revenue because solar is going to undercut them. And, and they did. And most of the electric utilities in Germany went bankrupt in this period, partly because of wind, partly because of solar, because it really depressed the prices. And all of a sudden, um, electricity got really inexpensive at times and they couldn't they couldn't make money with their fossil assets. So, yeah, I think maybe they didn't take it seriously. That's the explanation I had. It's like, why didn't they see this coming? I think they never took it seriously. It was kind of the the focus on only large scale matters. So if someone wants to do something with wind and solar, go for it, you know, have fun. It'll make you feel green. It's never going to add up to much, but they, they underestimated how much it would grow and how much it would actually hurt their profits. And it did. And so all the major utilities went bankrupt after, after solar started growing in Germany, but you know, that lesson was learned across the world. And so you started to have opposition to solar in a lot of places after that, including in the U S and in other places as well, especially by utilities electric utilities that, you know, have this sweet deal. They have this monopoly mm-hmm. franchise. They don't have to have competition. And, but here's this technology that people can get away from having to buy from the monopolist. And that, that's a threat. And as the solar grows, it becomes actually a real issue for their, their profits and returns to investors. Yeah, maybe this is um, too wonky a question, but yeah, I'm I'm curious if you could just like spell out because I think it is like somewhat counterintuitive of like why would a utility company go bankrupt um, if there is like a lot of solar being deployed? So solar definitely was getting cheaper around this time, but it doesn't strike me that like you know fundamentally as a technology, it was like producing electricity at like orders of magnitude uh, like cheaper than like nuclear or coal was, right? Like I guess otherwise we wouldn't have like another like twenty years in our story of of, of solar getting uh, cheap to to beat out fossil fuels. Yeah, well, this is getting into wonkiness here. Um, <laughs> but basically, maybe the difference is it's not so much uh, what solar costs versus gas or coal to build. It's what solar costs to run and what gas and coal costs to run and nuclear. And so all of them, if you have to run your plant for a day to produce electricity, 
you have to pay people, you have to buy coal, you have to buy natural gas, and you have to pay for uranium fuel. And those are, you know, expensive real costs. Um, but when solar comes in, if it's sunny, it's free. And so yeah. the price that solar would bid into market is basically zero. And so these coal companies are competing with solar and all of a sudden the prices go way down because when solar's there or wind is there, the prices are free or zero or very low. Um, so all of a sudden this profitable period becomes unprofitable uh, to them. And that's a big reason they went uh, bankrupt. And then it starts happening in the U.S. too. And actually the place that it really hits partly uh, solar, wind, uh, and also cheap natural gas is nuclear power in the U.S. Mm. gets hit by the same issue. And so we start shutting down nuclear plants in the U.S. that are built and that still have many years to run uh, because solar and wind, and to some extent, cheap natural gas, make the prices and markets so low that you've got this really expensive technology and you can't get revenue anymore. Uh, it yeah. becomes becomes a problem. Yeah, it seems to be, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like an interesting flip side of one of the critiques, um, you know, of solar is that it's like intermittent energy that like it's not reliable. You need to have um, some kind of like base load to, to complement it unless you have um, a lot of batteries, uh, which then make it uh, a lot more expensive. But this kind of like death spiral dynamic or something that you're like describing here. Um, yeah, um, well, do you seems to the, just like. But just to, on the yeah, death so spiral. On. So that I mean, yeah. that's part of what explains it, too. So. As you, so the issue with utilities is they have all this fixed infrastructure, they pay for it by selling electricity. And what happens is people start dropping out of the system because mm. either they don't consume as much electricity, maybe eventually they don't consume any electricity from the utility because they're producing their own. And so the utilities have this fixed cost. And so the only thing they can do if they are losing people or losing megawatt hours to sell is to raise prices. And then if you raise prices, mm. even more people drop out. And so that's the that's the death spiral that utilities start to see coming. And that's why the savvy ones in the US, as soon as they start seeing a little bit of solar starting to happen in a market, um, they start talking to regulators and saying, we need to stop it. They don't say that, but they say, we need to make solar pay the cost that's imposing on everybody. And that does effectively slow it down. So yeah, there's a real... Uh, awareness of a threat to the utility model um, yeah. that uh, that solar creates. Yeah, yeah, it seems hard. Um, yeah, especially with that dynamic of like, we'll be kind of lucky that uh, energy companies or utility companies didn't catch on like sooner to this and like create a lot more obstruction. And like, if they did, like, could they have actually like killed this or, or slowed this down by uh, 10 or 15 years? Or were we unlucky that, you know, the transition um to just supporting solar and like switching over um you know um wasn't quick enough and that we got all of these like obstacles or compromises that we like really wouldn't have needed if we were just like running through with it it's a good question um it seems like it was fortunate in germany because germany had this kind of big bang of the first really big solar market and the chinese responded and so much good came out of that and it yeah mm. if utilities had blocked it or softened it or weakened it or shortened it yeah, you wouldn't have had this bing bang. But on the other hand, we did have markets come on after Germany in Spain, in California, and eventually in China. So I don't know, in a counterfactual world, maybe they become the real drivers of solar and they play the German role, but probably does delay things. And that we have already said was it already took yeah. longer than it should have. So that probably would have extended the delay even more. Yeah.
Do you have any good guesses as to why uh, utility and energy companies missed this? Um, seems like there was a lot of money riding on this. Um, and it seems that like if anybody was going to catch it, it would be energy like market experts. Yeah, the explanation I got from talking to German politicians is that the utilities were just arrogant and they underestimated that solar would ever grow into anything and be anything big enough to threaten them. Um, yeah. So it's only after people see what happened to Germany, like people in the U.S. and Japan and China and other and Australia and others uh, that they see, OK, this is what can happen if solar starts <laughs> to grow. So, um, yeah. yeah, it becomes much more of a threat. Yeah, and they're interesting. Okay, so I guess you uh, alluded to it, but yeah, let's get to the the kind of last phase, uh, which is China. Yeah, mm -hmm. so there were German subsidies, uh, and then China responded. Uh, what what happened there? Yeah, so German subsidy program goes in in two thousand, and then in two thousand four, it gets really beefed up, strengthened, and so that's the key period for the German subsidies. Um, but around this time, you've got these Chinese players and Australian players that are starting to commercialize the technology. There's a group that's really central to the whole solar story, University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, that has been working on solar since the 70s, especially going mm. to the US and getting equipment and getting training in Canada and other places. So this international flow starts taking Chinese students into their lab and in the mid 90s goes to China to set up manufacturing of solar. And they spent a while there and uh, realized that there was no infrastructure, there was no interest, and there's no way um, that they could set up solar there. So they, they left China, and then they went to India and tried to do it there, and it didn't work either. So they went to Australia and set up a company called Pacific Solar uh, with funding from the local electric utility. And that played a role, too, because then people in this university lab started to get practical experience with manufacturing and actually mm. selling panels. And then around 2000, one of those students that became that was on that 1994 trip to China as a translator. He's Chinese, uh, but worked at University of New South Wales. Um, you know, gets a call from a friend in China and saying, you know, things are changing now. You should come back and take a look. And they spent like six months trying to find a place to start a solar business in China and really didn't get anywhere until the very end of that six months. And they rounded up $5 million, $5 million yeah. um, to start a manufacturing facility in Wuxi and started with a small, like 10 megawatt per year line. You know, this is like on the scale of doing, you know, tens or hundreds of houses a year. It's like really small. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing they were able to do though, was go to a trade show in Germany and say, here are these solar panels. We made them in China and the Germans super proud of their technical and engineering prowess, you know, said, well, we're not going to buy something that's made in China. You guys have no experience making solar panels. Um, but you know, what they could say is, well, we have worked on the team that made the world record, most efficient solar cells at university of new South Wales. So we know how to make not only solar panels, but really high quality ones. And that convinced the Germans and that was their opening. And from there it was iteratively upscaling, but, you know, this is not the central government in China and Beijing saying mm. we want to have a solar industry. This is entrepreneurs scrambling to get money, sourcing used equipment from all over the world, elbowing on their way to a trade show, convincing skeptical Western consumers to buy their panels and then building the next line and doing this, you know, without a lot of sleep and scrambling to do it. Yeah. It's the Wild West of, you know, and then when they really had to upscale when Germany increased their subsidy in 2004. Again, they couldn't come to the central government. Solar still wasn't taken seriously 
Um, but people in the West, especially in the U.S., the two things that investors in like 2004, 5, 6 in the U.S. were interested in, this was the first clean tech boom. So anything environmental, so solar is good mm. there, and then China. So if you could do solar and China, you could sell just about anything. And so yeah. that's what these Chinese solar companies did. They did IPOs on the New York Stock Exchange and raised hundreds of millions of dollars and then used that money to buy equipment from places like Switzerland and Italy and also the U.S. They took that equipment back to China, to Wuxi, put them together into assembly lines, built more panels, sold them to the Germans, but then also to other places that had subsidy programs starting like Spain, the U.K., uh, California, and eventually China had a market too. So it was really this circular movement of capital and people and machines and final products that is such a part of it. And even though kind of the core of it at this period, the 2000 to present period is, is located now in China. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, um, there's like a really interesting spotlight here on just showing people's different motivations here. And again, I think this is like really to uh, credit your kind of like interdisciplinary nature, which is like based on a lot of interviews and, and some of yeah. these like personal insights, but looking at like the China solar, like PV market, it just sounds incredibly like cutthroat and like capitalist like competition just seems to have been like incredibly fierce yeah um which i guess is like great because the thing that they were like being fierce about was like to get costs down which is yeah. like what we ultimately cared about and you know building you know some kind of like resilience like supply chains right there there was this like um uh you kind of described uh, in your book this like infamous spike in um silicon prices right like in the 2010s and it really just seems to be this like okay prices up market signal increase supply to get like uh, the price down again. Um, so I guess like that is like, you know, bucketing all of the like, um, you know, uh, profit and, 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 and money motivations here. Yeah. So that's to say like, you know, there's this like, uh, definitely just this like distinct like theme of uh, entrepreneurship and profit. And uh, yeah, like it reads like really ruthless um, kind of competition. But then on the other hand, you mentioned, you know, this like real importance of, um, New South Wales, which has been working like on this topic since the 70s. And it went through, right, like the booms and busts of um, R&D that we were like describing before. And it just seemed to be important that a lot of these like people were intrinsically motivated either by, you know, um, uh, science and like research or also as we were like speaking to before, you know, the importance of um, climate change and environmentalism. And like, I think uh, you described in your book um, that the the leader of this lab like was very explicitly like saw this as a race against um, Chinese and, and India uh, industrialization and therefore like also emphasized the focus on developing these technologies to be applicable for those markets because that was like ultimately what he um, saw as the end game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you want to do that, sell to a large developing country because you want them to develop in a clean way, then they can't be super high-end, super expensive things that only work for rich consumers. They have to be reliable. They have to be not lead a lot of maintenance and they have to be uh, super affordable. And so, yeah, I think going into it that way, I think was, uh, was important. But interestingly also, you know, did not come at the sacrifice of technological prowess. Like this is a group that was creating record-setting efficiency devices year after year. And so it was really... I think a really intriguing competition or combination of high-end technological prowess with understanding that ultimately it needed to be made in a way that was 
super inexpensive. And, you know, that's kind of maybe the way you do it is you use yeah. smart technology uh, to make it inexpensive. Yeah. And what was it about, um, I guess, this like Chinese ecosystem, um, you know, when we're talking about like innovation here that like just help them get costs down? Yeah. I mean, that's just a combination of multiple things, incremental changes. I think the one thing I talk about is it's iterative upscaling. So we talked about that first 10 megawatt line and then six months later, there's a 30 megawatt line. And each time they build a new line, uh, they did something different. They found ways to take a step out of it by combining processes or do something that had been doing had been done manually and add a new piece of automation equipment to do that. And so they had lots of chances to introduce these incremental improvements and they just added up to steadily declining costs because they kind of knew that's, they knew that's what had to happen. And so everything they did was not to make efficiency higher, it was to make costs lower and they had lots of chances to do it. And the other thing that was important to it is they had this ambition, they had this idea that this was going to be a big growing industry. And, you know, I guess the way I'd interpret it is that there was more risk to staying small, which means your costs mm -hmm. stay high, than there would be to expanding, which means your costs will go low. The only risk is that you can't sell all the panels um, that you make. But, you know, that's something that China, probably uniquely compared to everybody else in the world, they do not mind developing overcapacity, in part because they've been on this growth trajectory for 40 yeah. years. So even if it's overcapacity today, in a year or two, it'll all get used up and they'll need to expand beyond that. And just that's what solar needed. It needed this ambition. And one of the German uh, scientists that I talked to about this, who was involved in the German industry, and there's this transition around 2004, 5, 6, where Germans had the biggest company in the world. And then after that, Chinese did. And he said, you know, when the Germans were thinking in megawatts, the Chinese were thinking in gigawatts. They were like mm. three orders of magnitude higher in thinking about how much they would produce, how big their facilities would be, how much they would invest. And that's what solar needed. And that really led to a lot of costs coming down because you had fixed costs. You could spread over more units. You could start to invest in specialized machinery that didn't make sense at small scale. But at large scale mm. like that, you could get a computer supplier to say, we need a pulse annealer that works for the solar industry. Uh, we don't want your super high-end one right. for the computer industry. Make us one that's cheaper because we don't need quite the uh, quite the precision that that they need. So yeah, that that scale also led to a lot of cost reductions as well. Yeah, and I guess at some point the um, government did kind of kick in, right, and like started seeing this as a um, like boom for China as well, which seems to have played an important role around like 2008 or around the time that uh, Germany was like tapering off uh, some of these subsidies as well. Solar becomes a strategic industry. And in China, that means something. That means the central government is going to back it up. And that wasn't true before 2008, 2009. The other thing that happened in 2008, 2009, global financial crisis. So mm. countries around the world start cutting their solar subsidies. So that's going to kill the industry. And Two, capital becomes really scarce and people don't want to invest in almost anything at that time. Uh, so the Chinese central government does what they're good at. They do the opposite. They create their own market and in a couple of years have a feed-in tariff like Germany did in China. So we now have a, the largest market in the world is in China by 2011, 2013. 
Uh, mm. And also they make funding available to keep these companies afloat. And so it's on the order of 30 to $40 billion in the 2009-2010 period. Yeah, wow. When the rest of the world is really suffering, and China's suffering too, because they're trying to export to these countries that are now shrinking. Um, but that's what the central government does really well is like they keep things alive when uh when you know the near term forces are are likely to to make these companies run out of money so that was huge in that time that's when the central government finally became a big part of the story yeah well and i guess that kind of gets us pretty close to to where we are um today and it, yeah like makes me want to ask like what is probably the obvious question which is like should we expect solar to get a bunch like cheaper still like are we at the end of the the learning curve and are there like real challenges now or should we expect that not only will solar get cheaper than fossil fuels and be able to price uh, these out of the markets but get so cheap that we might just be uh, living in a world with a lot cheaper energy yeah no i think that's where we're going i think that's it's pretty clear you know Today, 2022, solar is more expensive than it was last year. And that's the first time that's happened in about 15 years. But it all did happen 15 years ago that the learning curve apparently had stopped and solar prices mm. weren't up for a few years in 2006, 2007. But it's just like today, everything was getting more expensive. Steel and aluminum and all kinds of commodities were rising in costs in 2006 and seven because of supply chain constraints and rapid growth. Same as now. And what happened with solar after that, 2008, is all this new capacity came online to make purified silicon and to assemble solar panels. And I think that's probably what's going to happen now with some of these input materials like polysilicon that have gotten expensive. There'll be a lot more capacity that comes on. There's a lot of countries now that want to have their own domestic manufacturing. And so that's going to expand capacity too. So I think it's mm. setting up the stage for more cost reductions. And the other thing about it is we're still on the old generation technology. We're still right. on sliced silicon wafers that we've been doing for like 40 years now. And the alternatives like thin films, like what went into calculators and what you might see once in a while on like a jacket that has a little solar panel built into it, uh, those flexible thin films, those have never been more than 10% of the market. And so... There's potential, though, that those or other new technologies, different types of solar, could be layered on top of silicon solar or eventually be their own devices. And so uh, there's definitely a lot more room for cost reductions to happen. Right. Yeah. And do you see that as kind of an extension of this, like, uh, China phase where it just ends up being incremental, uh, you know, um, progress in getting these uh, costs down? Or is it... Um new phase like should we expect the geographic center of, of solar to to shift or is there like some other key player um that that is going to be key to this well i'd say two things are likely to happen one is we're going to have new materials at some point so it's mm. kind of like predicting the end of moore's law with semiconductors and computers <laughs> people have been saying that for 20 years and we're still eking out gains in uh regular old silicon semiconductors the same thing with solar we keep finding ways to keep making it cheaper and so it's been hard for alternatives to enter in. But, you know, I think now that we start to have countries around the world taking solar seriously, realizing that they could maybe build part of their national energy strategy around it, maybe even attract energy intensive industry to those places, maybe especially from places where energy has gotten really expensive, like Japan and Europe right now, maybe some of that manufacturing starts to happen in the Middle East, where they've got ample access to uh, solar insulation and 
access to capital to build lots. And so that's where I could see solar really making a difference is moving manufacturing around. And then once that starts to happen, then the the impetus to have your own domestic manufacturing capability starts to get even higher. And the U.S. started that two months ago with the Inflation Reduction mm. Act and having uh, subsidies, like $60 billion of subsidies for clean energy domestic manufacturing. I think we'll see that in other places as well. And crucially, I think the place you'd really see it are these places like Vietnam and Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, places in Middle East and North Africa, and, and other places where if they start to build their future energy supply around solar, then mm -hmm. why not start manufacturing some of it there? And you can right. start the way China started. China started by doing the easy stuff, taking glass and adding that to solar cells that they bought from Germany. And so you could do the same thing in a country like Egypt, import solar cells from China, get some Chinese to come help set up a manufacturing line to assemble the panels and glass and and go go from there. So yeah, I do think China's probably at its high point in terms of concentration of the solar industry. And there's a lot of mm. forces that will lead it to uh, proliferating in other places as well, which I think is a, a really good thing for, for all these places. And do you see there being like any like failure modes? Like if you had to if I told you that like in 10 years, soda just didn't get much cheaper and we're just like kind of stuck in a rut, like, do you have any guesses as to what would have caused that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. No, I don't know. I think that means that <laughs> Very bullish, somehow, yeah, yeah somehow uh, interest rates stay high for like 20 years and it's just too expensive to finance manufacturing or even purchase solar make solar farms i mean i think that's pretty unlikely that's about the only thing i can imagine stopping yeah. is that it's impossible to finance these projects but technically it just seems like there's more room to grow there's very little that would make it get more expensive and i can see a lot of reasons why it would get uh less expensive i mean but you know these are the devices there's still all the implementation of installing solar on people's roofs or doing a big project in the desert and then building a grid that you need to do in a developing country that doesn't have a, a solid and reliable grid. And so there's a lot of other expenses as well. So this is not like mm. it's free, although it's a good thought experiment to think what would happen if the solar devices themselves were free or close to mm -hmm. free. You know, what if they're just like yeah. paint that you paint a house with solar paint and you just add a couple of electrical contacts to it and then you've got your solar installation right there and you know then i think that's not out of the question uh and then you can start to think of using it in a lot more places than we do today so i think yeah there's there's definitely more more room to go on that i mean do you have any guesses as to like the macro implications of like if you you know the like now century uh old dream of like energy being too cheap to meter like actually gets made right and like solar just is so cheap that you can paint it on your walls and presumably then also just get your energy for for essentially free yeah, that I seems think like it, a very different world. It's a different world, but it, it puts the pressure away from energy supply, which that's where all the focus has been because it's always been scarce and expensive to do. And it, that becomes the cheap part. And the important part is building the grid, building the transmission system, mm -hmm. doing all the ancillary work that allows you to build a system around a resource that's only there part of the day and part of the year. So building lots of transmission combining solar with things that are uncorrelated with sun, like wind, building storage around it and making demand responsive. And so that's that's the part where all the 
effort needs to go in, even if solar is free, right. uh, we have to do the whole systemic part. And that, that'll be the challenge. But yeah, I'm pretty optimistic that we can figure that out. Yeah. I mean, one potential failure mode I want to um, uh, run by you is, I guess, like framed around that, like energy uh, has always been like a compromise between uh, being cheap, being clean and uh, being independent. So giving countries uh, that kind of independence and that the more that solar grows and the more that it is like obvious to countries that solar is just a really important industry, we should expect there to be more securitization or like more national interests in securing supply chains in not collaborating uh in really going against what i think a lot of our like you know previous hour like of conversation was which was knowledge transfer you know shifting global progress open collaboration and stuff like are you worried at all um by like recent legislation that puts more of a focus on solar produced in the us or solar produced in china as opposed to um yeah this like open uh collaboration yeah, I guess I'm less worried about that for solar than I am for future technologies at our earlier stage because mm. that international collaboration and movement of people and knowledge and machines and money around the world was so crucial for solar. And we need things to go faster than solar. And that can only slow things down. If we say everything has to be bought in America, like that was originally in the Green New Deal resolution from 2018 or so. Yeah. And that, you know, or 2019, you know, that would really slow things down. Um, so for solar, I'm not so worried, though, because we're at the point where, you know, maybe that actually would be helpful. It's so concentrated in China right now that if we start to really expand production in other places like Vietnam and Malaysia, which are getting like 5% of their GDP of their exports are coming mm. from selling solar panels. So it's like a huge industry in places. And, you know, the U.S. starting to develop its own manufacturing in other places as well. I, I'm not too concerned about that happening for solar. I, I am concerned about that for other technologies where we cut off the supply of people and cut off collaboration, uh, especially things right. for things that are new. Because then I think that puts us more into a world that looks like nuclear power research, where there's a national security aspect of it. There's some collaboration, but it's very formalized and very controlled. And if you are foreign national in a company in a country doing nuclear research there's a lot of reporting and a lot of surveillance and so you know if we have that for other technologies we'll need to address climate change it just slows things down so uh i think for solar we'll be fine because we're kind of past the point where it's really taking off but yeah. uh yeah that kind of unglobalization of uh knowledge production is uh, is yeah. a concern yeah no that that's a really yeah excellent and and yon's answer well yeah let's maybe turn to uh, these other technologies then. So um, yeah, it seems that uh, looking at solar, you kind of drew out these uh, nine key factors that seem to be really important in getting technology to be cheap. And if we want to do uh, not just as good as solar, uh, but a lot better uh, and, um, you know, net zero is maybe now like more urgent than it was uh, 30 years ago. Um, yeah. Like, like what are the, to, to recap, maybe what are the, the nine key factors here to, to keep in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think the the parts that I would focus on, maybe just at a slightly higher level than the nine key factors mm -hmm. I found for solar, is is one about you know finding ways to develop the technology. So about making sure we have trained scientists and engineers, but other people too, like marketers and communication. It's all helpful for getting a technology uh, adapted. So there's the there's the the people part. There's a research and development focus that's really crucial. Uh, the second part, so that's on kind of the technology push or supply. 
Um, the second part is on the knowledge flows of collaboration that we were just talking about. That's that's crucial. Having knowledge move around the world, trying to avoid barriers to collaboration, and then finally creating markets that are growing and robust. And I think robust has a couple meanings. Robust can mean strong. So yeah, we want strong markets, but it also means that it's insensitive to changes in the environment. And so that's what was really helpful was for solar when. Uh, an election was held in 2005 in Germany and the subsidy program was cut substantially. Mm. That didn't kill the industry because Germany wasn't the only game in town. There was Spain that was ramping up its subsidies. California had its California solar initiative that was just starting up. The UK became a market, Italy became a market, and China became its own market after the global financial crisis. So that robustness of markets is really crucial. And so if we have, if we can get into a situation where people expect these mar markets for these new technologies to be growing and not be sensitive to electoral or mm -hmm. other issues, um, then we're in good shape. Then people will invest. And if they invest, then it kind of has momentum on its own because that enables things to happen, enables scale, enables automation, enables a lot of these changes that have we've seen in solar and that, you know, we're seeing very similar story playing out in batteries for electric vehicles, which has been super beneficial and mm. like very much along the same uh same lines do you think that there are any technologies where people overread uh, the lessons of solar pv i mean it's been right like in many ways like such a uh, successful case study that i could imagine um yeah people overread the lessons and miss the the nuances that were important um for solar that might not replicate with with other technologies yeah i mean that's yeah for sure and I, that is some of the current work that i've been doing is to look at how can we take the lessons for solar for other technologies and as you get like a day into doing that and you realize okay there's other technologies that are just too different i mean solar is mm. small scale it's modular it's iterative it's lots of chances to improve it uh it's got this disruptive aspect where it doesn't have to be 100 percent performing and it's still fine uh, but you know think about nuclear power it's large scale. It has to be 100% performing all the time. So you need different models for different technologies. So yeah, I think the key is to say, what's a good analog? But it really helps to have analog because when we're talking about technologies and how they get used, it's all these things beyond the technical part. It's how the policy interacts. It's a political economy. How do incumbents mm. react? How do people, if they're using the technology, what do they want from it? If they're not using the technology, but just observing it, do they protest it? Do they block it? Can they? Uh, so it's a big system into which these technologies go to succeed or fail. And so it really helps to have something that you can study at the systemic level um, that gives you some insight on it. And maybe it's not a perfect comparison because it's different in some way. But for example, you know, one technology that people are interested in is removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Mm. And there's one chemical process called direct air capture where you can react to CO2, uh, add it to, it becomes part of a solvent, and then you can strip off the CO2, compress it, and stick it underground. So you're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it underground, and that could be a big help for addressing climate change. But the large-scale direct air capture plants, that doesn't look like a solar plant. Mm. That looks like a chemical refinery or a chemical plant or an oil refinery. And, you know, I have a postdoc student working on that now, and we tried to come up with a systemic process of figuring out what's a good analog. Right. And the one that we arrived at is ammonia synthesis. That's taking, uh, taking 
natural gas and making fertilizer out of it, which was became a huge industry and led the green revolution and kind of operated on the same scale. And so that's so you need different different models for different kind of archetypes of technology. Solar is good for small, iterative, modular, high tech. Mm. And you need other things like where system integration is a big issue or it's large scale uh, or there's some safety issue that you have to uh, protect against as well. And so, yeah, so thinking about ammonia synthesis as a good example of what we might need to do for high temperature, large scale direct air capture, um, you know, is one alternative way of using previous playbooks to inform the future decisions. Yeah. Well, and presumably as well, like, um, I mean, tell me if I'm uh, kind of interpreting you here uh, correctly, but it's not just that um, it's a case of like, we should only invest in technologies that look analogous, like uh, solar, but is that when we're like aligning our expectations of like how things will play out and what kind of like rates of progress to expect, then paying attention to these like nuances and analogies is important. You could also say climate just is really urgent and really uncertain. And it's like good to like diversify across bets. And some bets will be, you know, bigger one-off things and other things will be more incremental, more kind of like learning curve driven. Yep. I agree. I think that, yeah, the portfolio approach is needed. We need lots of different approaches and there's places that solar won't be helpful, like making cement, that's going to be crucial. And we could use the energy, the electricity from solar for that, but we're still making CO2 when we react it. So that's, um, that's something where we need something else, but I, I don't go all the way into the portfolio. I, I, there is mm. more and more evidence that these small scale technologies get adopted more quickly and learn more quickly than large scale technology. So there's niches where we'll probably need large scale technologies, but I, there's something about these small scale technologies that makes them counterintuitively, it's probably going to turn out that small scale technologies are more scalable, can get bigger than large scale ones for a variety of factors. So mm -hmm. I do think we need a variety of bets and different analogs for the different technologies we'll need. Um, but there is an advantage that the small scale technologies have that I think we probably want to overweight in our portfolio. Mm. What, what's your take on small modular reactors? Uh, I guess the, the two, so the small seems better than the large for the reasons we were just talking about, like <laughs> yeah. lots of different markets it could play in, get chances to improve it. You make lots of them. doesn't have to be customized on site like large nuclear reactors. You could make a, like a shipyard style factory and be churning them out. Um, so that all helps. The two things that are different than solar, though, are one, it doesn't have this global innovation possibility because it's got this dual use and there'll be protected intellectual property about it. So it that'll make it go slower. That'll make it go more slowly. And two, you know, because you have to keep it safe and you have to keep it cool and you can't let the fuel uh, be stolen, there's a lot of extra stuff. And it's not like you just put a reactor in a field and let it do its thing like you can with solar panels. You have to protect it. You have to have security and fences and you have to think about people living near it and how they feel about it. Uh, so there's just there's a lot of things that solar has that small modular reactors um, are going to be challenged with. And the key thing for them, though, is um, for small modular reactors is the costs and the tricky thing. And this is something that, you know, I've worked with nuclear engineers that are trying to identify markets for small modular reactors. 
And, you know, the thing that they look at is, well, we could have them compete with diesel generators. There's diesel generators all over the place for hospitals and data centers and backup power. The fuel is super expensive. It's based on $100 a barrel oil that gets refined into diesel. And so that's our niche. We can replace diesel generators with nuclear, small nuclear reactors. And, you know, that might have been true 20 years ago. But now that we have solar and we have battery storage, that's the alternative. And so if you're trying to convince a hospital or a college campus, you could have a small modular reactor on your campus and have completely uninterruptible power supply. Um, you could also say, well, we could also have a backup battery that's charged with uh, with clean electricity. And so the the bar that they have to get, the cost is lower that they have to meet now. So it's a, and they're just getting started. So it's going to yeah. be hard to get going. Um, so it'll take a lot of, sometimes called subsidies, also called forward pricing, where you uh, <laughs> yeah, figure yeah. you're going to ride down the learning curve so you can afford to lose money for a while. Yeah, interesting. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also think diesel generators get used a lot in LMICs um, or lower middle income countries because they have really bad grids and like a lot of power outages. So having these like generators is important, but I'm curious how that works with small modular reactors as well, where presumably having a um, good grid like matters. Yeah, but the other thing, the reason those are appealing in developing countries is they're super cheap to install and you can use used equipment from other places right. that's cheaper still. And yeah. small modular reactors can give you a lot of things, but being affordable yeah. is not something, at least not for quite a while. So <laughs> not yeah, yet. they're yeah. going to have to niche markets. pick their spots. Yeah, pick their niche markets really, really well because there's probably limited. But, you know, there could be a pathway where you start with mm. some really high value Places like, I don't know, maybe in the Arctic or find places where hydrogen is valuable and you can make hydrogen with these small modular reactors. And so, you know, it's it's there's some speculative aspects to it, but all technology has risk into it. So they're just yeah. going to maybe taking a bigger risk than others might. If there's anything outside of energy or climate change that strikes you as like, hey, this could be a really cool application of these concepts and be really good for the world, um, but isn't necessarily connected to uh, energy. It's a good question. You know, um, I have that uh, a couple uh, students working on a paper on synthetic meat. And, you know, there is a climate implication of it um, that, you know, beef production is incredibly carbon greenhouse gas intensive. And so mm -hmm. to avoid that, but, you know, it's also providing food and protein for uh, people that might not, not otherwise afford it. So that's an area where people are starting to look at how can we study previous technologies to understand how synthetic meat might develop mm. or even to identify some policy mechanisms that would allow you um, allow you to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I guess um, I'm also keen to just understand a bit better this like broader worldview about like how technologies work. So one thing that was really emphasized in this like solar thing was that different countries have these like different innovation um, characteristics, or you call them in your book, national innovation systems. And yeah, I, I'm keen for you to maybe expand that a little bit. Um, and why this like geographical focal point can like shift or, or move. Yeah. So the national innovation systems work in literature really just talks about the fact that countries are different. They have different cultures. They have different education systems. They value different things in society. People choose jobs based on different attributes. It leads them to have capabilities that are distinct. And so that China is able to scale up production of technologies 
uh, really quickly is not specific to solar. That's something that they learned how to do in earlier production processes like textiles and manufacturing, low-cost consumer products. And a lot of that know-how gets applied to solar. And so their national innovation system, a lot of it has to do with that. The U.S. has this strong scientific basis and really ample research funding in a lot of areas that it's not a uh, surprise that we end up with solar getting developed on the research side uh, in the U.S. And other countries have different attributes that lead them to be entrepreneurial or have specific expertise in life sciences versus physics or something like that. So this idea that countries are different and thus the contributions they have to innovation are different is the idea of national innovation systems. And boy, it works so well with solar because like in the simple version, the U.S. contributed the technology, the Germans contributed a way to create markets and the Chinese figured out a way to scale it up and make it cheap. And so, yeah, there's distinct capabilities. No one country could have done all that themselves. And how does the advantageness of backwardness uh, possibly fit into that? I guess there's this idea that, you know, if you're um, dis, uh, if you, you're missing something like the Japanese have, they're one of the fastest growing economies in the world over the last 50 years until about 20 years ago and had almost no fossil fuel resources. They import natural gas, they even import coal, and they import all their oil. And yet that hasn't been a a negative for them in general because it's led them to have some of the highest energy efficiency in the world. It's led them to be very advanced in terms of science and technology, especially for energy resources. And so there are ways in which not having a resource um, can make you more creative and more resourceful and allow resources to flow into something that might have longer term benefits that are even better than if you had uh, had the resource. So there really are some advantages of of not being uh, amply uh, endowed with resources, in particular fossil fuel resources. Mm. And do you buy the um, the like lock in thesis that if we pick certain technologies at the beginning, it becomes like really hard to switch out of them. Uh, we're all using the QWERTY keyboard, uh, but I guess in solar, it's the the point about the the sliced wafers. Could yeah. we be living in worlds where we have like found something def- uh, different and actually solar is like way cheaper now than it is? Uh, maybe, but I don't worry too much about that. You know, I think that the QWERTY keyboard works pretty well. It's probably more important that everybody has the same exact keyboard and learned it the same way than if there was one that was 10% more efficient because your fingers could get to it better, but hadn't actually converged as a dominant one. So there's a sense in which actually picking a dominant design and going with that really helps. And then the question is, well, does that block the long term? Do we do we end up being stuck in a dead end because uh, we don't have other means at our disposal? We don't have technological diversity. And I guess you have to think about that. But, you know, we have lots of research programs on thin film photovoltaics and perovskites and quantum dots and other ways to make electricity from solar. And so if we really hit the end of the learning curve or we run out of, we're not going to run out of silicon, but if something happens and we just stop making progress, we've got other things to turn to. So I don't worry too much about the locking because it goes hand in hand with a learning curve and scale and trying to have standardization and all the benefits that come uh, from that. So yeah, I think that's something as long as we're preserving some technological diversity on a smaller scale, like with some manufacturing and some R&D, 
um, then we have the ability to get out of a dead end if we if we do hit one. Why were most solar forecasts so bad? Uh, it seems that like some people like Maycock got it pretty spot on back in 1975, learning by doing big subsidy program and you're there. But nobody seems to like even now, right? Like with the IEA forecasts and stuff like have picked up on it. Yeah, well, I guess the easy answer, and I do this in my energy class, is all energy forecasts are bad. Oil prices or energy supply. So it's just another one where people get it wrong. Um, but with solar, it is systemically wrong. It's always under predicted how much solar will grow. Um, I, I don't know. I think there's you know some bias in models to establish technologies. There's also this idea that even though technology can grow fast at the beginning, they'll eventually slow down. And so all of those models that predict solar not going much faster say, well, it was 30% this year, but that can't keep up. So it's going to revert to something more like 10%, like most technologies. And mm. solar has defied all of that. It's grown at 30% or more for more than 30 years. And so that's transformational because then you're doubling every two to three years. And you know that's when you start to say, well, we're at 3% today. But if we do 30% for 10 more years, we're going to run out of space in the electricity system for solar because it'll be accounting for most of it. So, yeah, the growth is just, uh, yeah, people just underestimate that it can grow like it has. And it's not to grow faster. It's just to keep up what it's been doing. And that's what it mm. seems to consistently do. Do you have uh, betting odds for how cheap solar will be uh, in 2050? Uh, I guess what I would do, it's hard to throw out a number off the top of my head, but I would just take the solar learning curve and have it grow at 20 to 30% for the next 28 years and see where you get. And I would bet on that. Yeah, cool. All right, final questions. So this is just to wrap up. Um, what area or specific question would you like to see more good work on? Need more people working on climate change, need more people working on technology to address climate change. I've worked a lot on the supply side of energy technology, on solar, on wind, on batteries for electric vehicles. But the batteries for electric vehicles starts to go into a different direction where that's actually users. That's an end-use technology. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need is more work like this on end-use technology, on lighting, on heating, on cooling, on things people use in their houses, especially in developing countries, because that's that's yeah. where the whole ballgame is. That's where it's all going to happen or not happen is end use devices in developing countries so that's that's the part that really matters so yeah, yeah that's super interesting actually like yeah like cooling in developing countries like india yeah. pakistan the areas that are going to be affected by heat um that is a big research question i've actually yeah i'll, I'll link it in the in the write-up but there's a there's a great resource for that oh, good. um cool um what are three books articles or films or other bits of media that you'd recommend to anyone who wants to find out more about what we talked about here um well, I got to say, I do like this book on climate change called The Ministry for the Future. It's a science okay, fiction book yeah, yeah. about how things are likely to pan out over the next few decades. It's unusual. It's very well researched. It's unusual uh, for science fiction in not being dystopian. It actually ends up with a relatively uh, about as good as we can expect solution to climate change. And that's, so I think for a lot of people, you know, it's easy to be, get discouraged about climate change. Um, but that's that's encouraging. The other thing, and this is something that I worked on, if you look at the uh, this is much more wonky than that one. That's kind of an interesting, clever read. Um, mm. If you want something more wonky, you know, the 50 pages of the IPCC uh, six assessment report on climate change <laughs> mitigation. There's a lot in there. That's like years of work by hundreds of scientists 
approved by the 195 UN countries. And there's optimism in there too. There's a lot of, we're not doing as much, but the theme there is signs of progress, challenges remain. The climate problem is getting worse, but the solutions are getting better. And I, I think if you kind of internalize some of what's there, you could really uh, be really up to speed on on where we're at and what the what the possibilities are. Because I think a lot of people are rooted in discourse that was true 10 or 20 years ago where climate change is just really expensive and we may not be able to afford doing something about it. And that's not the way things look now, in part because of all the things that have happened with solar, what's happened with electric vehicles, and then what could happen with demand in developing countries. Uh, can I push you for for a third reading? Or I mean, the IPCC report is long enough that it counts as two, so I know. Yeah, and there's three that. working groups, so right. there's three That's of those reports. Good. So yeah, yeah. No, those. I guess those are the two I would I would yeah. recommend to start with. Yeah. Um, cool. And then, like, last question is: Where can people find you and what you're working on uh, online? Yeah, um, probably Twitter. Um, I'm at uh, Greg Nemet on Twitter, and I, I post there and, and find that a good community of people talking about. Um, what's happening with climate change mitigation. That's a good community there. All right, fantastic. Uh, Greg Nemet, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great, enjoyed it. Thanks for the questions. That was Greg Nemet on technological change and how solar PV got cheap. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Nemet. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. If you find this podcast valuable, then one of the best ways to help it is to write us a review on whatever platform you're listening to this, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. You can also give us a shout out on Twitter, we're at Hear This Idea. Uh, we also have a feedback survey in the episode description, uh, which should only take five to 10 minutes to fill out, and you'll get a free book from us as a thank you. And lastly, if you want to support and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, then you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes, and thanks very much to you for listening.